Turn, please, if you would, to Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. This text today speaks of radical change, something radically new that Jesus was announcing was on the scene. And he does it through a couple of different illustrations for us in today's text. Now, before we get there and we read that, as I think about change and something new, we live in an era of very quick change. Um, let me just ask the kids in here if they know, kids only, what this is right here. I'm going to put a picture up. What is that? Any children know what that is? Right here. It's a phone. You're right. What kind of phone is that? Anybody? What kind of phone? Okay, go ahead, Anthony. What kind of phone is it? That is a cell phone. That is a cell phone. Matter of fact, that, we had one, Heather had one just like that. It's a, it's a bag phone, and you actually had a bag that went around that exterior part there, and you'd have to carry the bag around your shoulder in order to use the phone. Now, normally you kept it in your car, but it was there in case you needed it, in case you wanted to go hiking and you wanted to carry your cell phone with you, it came with a nice handy carrying bag. Okay? So that's a cell phone. And that wasn't that long ago. We're talking... Now, kids, I know you'll think this is long ago, but it's not. We're talking early 90s here. 1990 was when people were still using phones that looked like that. Now, things quickly began to change, and there was this handy device. So now the phone no longer is the size of a bag. It's the size of a large sandwich. Okay? And you'd hold that thing up to your ear. All right? And people look like absolute fools holding this big old thing up to the side of their face. At least the other one had a small headset. But that was a portable cell phone. The first one wasn't that portable. This was the portable cell phone. And my first job, this is the cell phone that we had. We had a cell phone just like that. And you only used it in case of emergencies. It sat on the charger. It would only charge for like 20 minutes. It only lasted like 20 minutes. You took it with you. Only turned it on if you were in an emergency out doing a video shoot and you needed someone's help. Well, then phones kept evolving. And we had this handy one, which is the first flip phone, I guess, if you will. You had to pull the little antenna up and flip the little thing. And look at, the, look at the display on that. It had these little red numbers that would come across there so you could see what you were actually dialing. It wasn't caller ID or anything. Just that's all it was for. And that's what I had when we first got married. We had a phone just like that. Okay, and it came with a nice little pouch, too. It looked like you were carrying a sidearm when you had that thing hooked to your belt. And then there was this one, and this became much more standard. And notice the beautiful graphics up there, the, the gray and, and yellowish colored graphics that, that we all use. And then we began to be able to play snake on our phone. Remember the snake game? This little line that went around and ate up little dots. It was just a line and dots. And we'd play snake on our phone and be distracted from our work. So that instead of actually using a phone for a phone, it became a gaming system. And then, okay, phones progressed and up to this day that we have what we have now, these type of things, smartphones and Blackberries and everything else. And so the change has been rapid. Now, one of the things that caught me, the reason I brought these up is that I saw an ad for that one sandwich-sized phone, really a large sandwich-sized phone. I saw an old ad for it. By the way, new, it cost $1,400, $1,399. So you're talking a lot of money to buy a gigantic thing to carry along with you. And one of these ads said, revolutionize your life with this Motorola, whatever, model, cell phone, cellular phone. They didn't use cell, you have cellular phone, all right? Revolutionize your life. And I think about 
in our culture, things change so rapidly. Everything's changing. I mean, what's new now wasn't what was new yesterday is not is old now, and everything's changing so fast with our technology, computers, even with pop culture, things are changing so rapidly. Except one thing: the human heart is still looking for something revolutionary. Something revolutionary, something to, to make life make a lot more sense and work. And despite all the changes that are happening in our culture and in our world, the change people need is largely ignored. And it's the change, it's the radical change that Jesus speaks of here. Something radically new was on the scene. Something truly revolutionary. So turn to Mark, if you would. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. We're continuing with our series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. It's a verse-by-verse chronological walk through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ using all four Gospels. Our desire is to see Christ more fully and worship Him more rightly. So today we look at this text, which is a continuation of Jesus' Galilean ministry. If you'll remember the context from last week, Jesus has just finished feasting at Matthew's house. So please stand now as we read this passage of Scripture, which follows up right after this feast at Matthew's house. We have this passage of Scripture. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, for your help this morning. Lord, we need your help every morning. Holy Spirit, we need you to make these words come alive for us. Breathe these words into our hearts. Open up our stopped up ears. Open up our scaled covered eyes to see what you're teaching us in this text. And Lord, prevent us from wandering into error this morning. I pray that you bless this reading of your word and I pray that you bless the preaching of it as well. Because Lord, we all desperately need your help. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. Now, we cannot disconnect today's text from the immediate context. First of all, (coughs) as I mentioned last week and the week before, this story is part of a series of five stories in Jesus' life where we see Jesus being confronted by the increasingly hostile Pharisees. In this case, those confronting him are not only the Pharisees, but John the Baptist's disciples as well. We we get that from looking at the other two parallel accounts, that 
One of the accounts talks about the Pharisees coming to him. One of the accounts says that John's disciples speak to him. So I believe that we can conclude that what's happening here is that there's this question about Jesus not fasting. And, and, and it isn't just someone in general observing this and coming and asking Jesus a question. It's, it's actually the Pharisees, the disciples of the Pharisees, and, and the disciples of John the Baptist who are coming to Jesus and asking this question. So it's still a continuation of this this confrontation that Jesus is having with the religious leaders, the religious elite of his day. But for now, I want us to see that Mark is building tension here as he continues to tell these stories. For it seems that the Pharisees are getting more and more frustrated and more and more angry toward Jesus. First, Jesus claimed to forgive the sins of a paralytic, which was blasphemous to them. For only God could forgive sins. And then last week we saw that Jesus chose to call a wretched tax collector to be his disciple. But more than that, he even chose to go feast at Matthew's house with a bunch of other wretched tax collectors and other sinners. Other godless, immoral people. Jesus was eating with sinners. And so this flabbergasted the Pharisees. It angered them. No one understood his actions. Now, I first want us to see that that this is a larger part of these stories. But secondly, I want us to see that this story follows on the heels of the big party at Matthew's house. Meaning Jesus has just been feasting. He's been enjoying good food and good wine. He's been feasting. And feasts like this could last, in Jesus' culture, could last a, a week or even longer. It wasn't just a day. So that it seems that at some point during this feasting, the Pharisees and John's disciples got upset because they thought he should have been fasting instead of feasting. Now, a word on fasting. Fasting, as you probably already know, was one of the three pillars of Jewish piety. Okay, along with prayers and almsgiving. Fasting, though, is only... Prescribed, it's only commanded once in the Old Testament. There's only one place in the Old Testament where people are told, commanded to fast, and that's found in Leviticus chapter 16, and they were to fast on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They were supposed to fast on that day. Now, we do have in the Old Testament other fasts recorded, but they were voluntary fasts, or maybe fasts for a nation to, to repent. So we have Esther asking the people, the Jews, to, to fast because of the, the plot against the Jews to wipe them out. We have Daniel praying and fasting on his own as he seeks God's guidance in how to deal with Nebuchadnezzar. We have, we have Ezra and calling for a fast of the Israelite people as they repent and turn back to God. So there are these voluntary fasts that we read of in the Old Testament. But the Pharisees, you see, they had added to God's law, just like they had in many other arenas. They had added to God's law, and they expected good Jews to fast twice a week. If you were a good, pious Jew, you should fast twice a week. You can read about that in, in Luke chapter 18. You remember the parable Jesus tells of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee there, according to Luke chapter 18, verse 10, it says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And of course, here he is praying. So there's those three pillars again. Prayer, almsgiving or tithing, and fasting. And so any good Jew, any good pious Jew, and the Pharisees were the most devout and religious of them all, 
should be fasting twice a week. These fasts were usually on Monday and Thursday. So perhaps what's happening here is that Matthew's feast has gone on and it's gone past one of those days and Jesus has continued to feast with Matthew. Who knows? But apparently John's disciples were upset as well. Apparently they too observed the the two days of fasting or at least some sort of ritual fasting just like the Pharisees did. After all, it was the duty of a truly devout and religious person to do these type of things. So the question that these Pharisees and John's disciples have for Jesus is this. Why are you not religious like we are? Why are you not observing the right rituals like we do? Surely you can't be who you claim to be if you don't do all this religious stuff. You aren't as pious as we are. You aren't as godly as we are. You aren't as disciplined as we are. Anyone who claims to be a rabbi would do these things. Explain yourself, Jesus. And so Jesus gives them an answer. And his answer is absolutely remarkable. And I want us to see that the the overall aim of this text is simply this. And this is the first thing in your notes. In today's text, we see Jesus teaching that the old rituals of Judaism were no longer adequate. And instead, a new relationship with him was absolutely necessary. The old rituals, the old forms of Judaism were no longer adequate. And instead, a new relationship with him was absolutely necessary. So it's the inadequacy of the old. So if you want to kind of give a heading, I almost titled the sermon this. The inadequacy of the old, the necessity of the new. Jesus wants these people to see that something radically new has happened and is happening. A new era, a new age, a new covenant is coming into being. And the old forms, the old age, the old covenant were fading away. Something new has come if they would only have eyes to see and ears to hear. The old religious rituals were now fading for those who had entered into a new radical relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it's the same today. There are many very religious and devout and devoted people who will only come to realize one day they do not know the Lord. They do not know Jesus. I grew up in a very Catholic country, extremely Catholic country. And in that country, there were all sorts of rituals and and practices and, and things that people did to, to try to make themselves right with God. But it was empty. It was devoid of anything real because they had no real relationship with God. But when someone, by God's grace, sees Jesus for who he is, his eyes are open and his heart is made new and everything changes. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. Something radically new has come to those who know Jesus. I want to go through four things this morning. I want us to see four things about this relationship with Christ and why this relationship with Christ is so radical. So something new has come for those who know Jesus, for he is, number one, he is God with us. Here's the first one. Something new has come for those who know Jesus, for he is God with us. And Jesus said to them, verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The bridegroom. Whenever Jesus chooses an analogy about himself, he doesn't just do it haphazardly. He's not sitting there going, okay, how can I help these guys understand? Oh, yeah, okay, let's pretend like I'm a bridegroom. He he doesn't operate that way. He uses very precise 
and careful words. Every word of Jesus is, is properly measured. When I go over my sermon every Sunday, I find words that aren't properly measured. Oh, I don't need to say that that way. Oh, that's not right. You know, oh, you don't spell it that way. Okay, whatever. My words aren't right. Jesus' words, he always knew exactly what he was saying. He said exactly what he wanted to say. And so he's very precise. And more than that, the analogies Jesus uses of himself, the comparisons he uses to help us understand who he is, are not drawn out of a vacuum. But they are connected to the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament testifies to who he is. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So whether Jesus is calling himself the true vine, or the good shepherd, or the bridegroom, he is doing so intentionally, and he is drawing from Old Testament images. So here in this passage, as Jesus calls himself a bridegroom, in doing so, he is making a remarkable claim. Because in the Old Testament, only one person is called the bridegroom of Israel. It's Yahweh, God. Only Yahweh, God, is called the bridegroom of Israel in the Old Testament. We read of God being a bridegroom in Jeremiah chapter 2 and in Ezekiel chapter 16, Isaiah 54. And then in Isaiah 62, 5, we read this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. These Old Testament passages that speak of the Lord as a bridegroom speak of a time when he would come to, to visit his people, to restore them, to cleanse them, to bring justice to them, and to pour out his mercy upon them. It's what we saw in Hosea. We looked at Hosea just a, just a couple of months ago. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. This is the Lord speaking. God, Yahweh. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And you shall know the Lord. When the bridegroom comes, his people will know him. You shall be brought into a more intimate relationship with him than ever before. And Jesus is saying, that time is now. As he's talking to these Pharisees, and that time's here. It's here. Jesus is the bridegroom. Come to receive and restore his people. And those who had eyes to see and ears to hear would have heard what Jesus said and heard that he was making a claim to deity. Now, I do agree that to a certain degree it's veiled. In these early passages here, that as Jesus says these things, it's partially veiled. People are going, does he really mean that? And even here he'll talk about his death. He'll talk about being taken away. And, and so there's this, there's this a certain amount of... of, of um, of uncertainty here about exactly what Jesus means. But, but as the Gospels progress, the veil is pulled back more and more, and we see for sure what Jesus is talking about here. So for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, and the veil has been lifted for them, they look at this passage and they see that Jesus is claiming to be God here. He is claiming to be Yahweh. Those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, let them hear it this morning, that Jesus is God. So now something new. Something new is here. You don't, you don't know Yahweh through fasting. No, those who want to know Yahweh know him through Jesus. You don't know Yahweh through ritual 
and activity and doing. You know Yahweh by resting in Jesus. And that's what we have here for Jesus is the Son of God. He is the bridegroom. And those who know him have become his bride. So this is a time of feasting, not fasting. For something new has come for those who know him. For Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. But also we read that Jesus puts joy in us. So not only is Jesus God with us, he puts joy in us. Verse 19, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. They cannot fast. Why? Because you don't mourn in a wedding. You don't mourn at a wedding. The fasting of the Pharisees and of John's disciples was a fasting of gloom and of mourning. If you look over in the parallel passage in Matthew 9, 15, Jesus talks about how they were mourning. It wasn't just fasting. There was gloom involved here. But for the most part, the fasting of Jesus' day had become a show. If you wanted to show how serious you were, how, how sad you were, even over your sin, how grieved you were, and how in bondage you felt that God's people were, then you would fast and you would look gloomy while you fasted. Now some did this with genuine motives, like Anna the prophetess in Luke chapter 2, who was daily fasting and praying and waiting for the Messiah to come. But in large part, fasting had become a farce. And so in Matthew 6, Jesus challenges the accepted fasting practices of his day. He says this in Matthew 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So fasting had become this, this way of showing that you were sad and you were gloomy and that you were mourning over God's people. And that was what fasting had come to be about, but it was in large part a farce. It was a gloomy, despairing ritual carried out by gloomy, despairing people. It was more fitting for a funeral than a wedding. And Jesus here is saying that those who know me as a bridegroom know that it's not appropriate to fast now that I'm here. I mentioned Anna the prophetess in Luke chapter 2. You can look that passage up if you want to. Luke chapter 2, verse 37. It says, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So they bring Jesus into the temple. Remember, Anna the prophetess sees Jesus coming. She's been waiting for this. And what does her fasting turn into? But thanksgiving and celebration. Her gloom had turned into thankfulness. Why? Because Jesus was on the scene. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. You feast at weddings, right? You go to a wedding and go to the reception and you expect food. You don't expect them to get down there and there to be nothing. Just a little bit of water and no food. And the, for the wedding person, say, we're just all going to go without. We're just going to fast for the next hour. We're going to fast. Now, maybe the father of the bride would like to do it that way. We're, we're going to grieve over my financial situation now. But, but the wedding is not a place for mourning. It wasn't action appropriate to the occasion. I remember when I was a kid, and I'm not going to tell you what election it was. I'm not going to tell you who my parents were voting for. But I remember my parents during one of the elections, presidential elections, 
the person that they were voting for did not win. And our neighbors were voting for the other candidate. But my parents and our neighbors didn't know that they were voting for two different candidates. And so when the election results come in, I remember our neighbor coming over, knocking on the door. And he walks in, and he's got, he doesn't have champagne or anything. He has a bottle of Coke, because he knew my dad. All right, he walks in, hey, let's celebrate. And as soon as he walked in, he could tell the mood wasn't the same in that house. And I remember them sitting there talking politics that night and that bottle of Coke just sitting over there unopened. And I remember him leaving that day with that bottle of Coke still in his hand. The, the action wasn't appropriate to the occasion, at least what, not, what was going on in my parents' house. Friends, there are some things that you don't wear to certain occasions, right? And no one wears dark clothes and carries a somber disposition when they go to a wedding. Remember... Matthew and the other disciples, they were celebrating a great feast at Matthew's house. And this feast was due to the fact that they had been redeemed and that they had come into a new relationship with the lover of their souls, the bridegroom of Israel. So they were rejoicing and they were feasting. The arrival of Jesus puts joy into the hearts of all those who are his. We read that Jesus desires that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. You can read about that in John 15. John's disciples should have understood this. For John the Baptist himself had said in John chapter 3 verse 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. Jesus was on the scene so John the Baptist says, I am filled with joy. I'm not sure why his disciples didn't get the message. I have a theory um, I think these disciples of John the Baptist missed his message. Because John the Baptist came to point his disciples away from himself and to Jesus. And we read that many of them left him and went and followed Jesus. But apparently some of them didn't. And who knows, John may be in prison at this point. Chronologically, we haven't gotten to that yet. As we're going through this, we're going to deal with that when we talk about John the Baptist's death. But he may have been in prison before this. And so maybe they're mourning and grieving over his imprisonment. Who knows? But they should have seen the bridegroom. Do you know the bridegroom? Friends, there are many who are enduring religious ritual for God instead of enjoying a radical relationship with God. Let me say that again. There are many who are enduring religious ritual for God instead of enjoying a radical relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Those who know the bridegroom have great joy. I read this passage last week, 1 Peter 1, 8 and following Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Something new has come, namely Jesus, and he has put joy in our hearts. But he's done more than that. So much more than that. Matter of fact, the root cause of our joy is the next thing in our notes. Something new has come for those who know Jesus, for he, number three, died for us. The days will come, the passage continues, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Taken away means to be taken by force. This Greek word actually means to snatch away. It's a violent removal of someone or something. Jesus is speaking here in veiled terms of his death. He, the bridegroom, will be taken away. He'll be snatched away. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, 
uses that exact same verb snatched away in this passage of Scripture right here from Isaiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Taken away. This is the first mention in Mark of Jesus' impending death on behalf of sinners. This is the first of several statements Jesus would make as he progressively unfolds for his disciples what is going to happen to him. As you read the Synoptic Gospels, you see this. You see Jesus giving a little bit more information and a little bit more light and a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit here. But his disciples don't ever seem to get it until after he rises again. So as we read Mark's Gospel, we see this progression. We have this right here where we just read The bridegroom is going to be taken away from them. But then in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we read this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. I'm not sure how much clearer you could get than that. But right after that, Peter decides to rebuke Jesus for saying these things. And Mark continues in Mark chapter 9, verse 15. It says... Is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Mark chapter 10, verse 38. And this is he speaking to James and John. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? So now he's introducing another concept, and that is the wrath of God. So he's talking about he's going to be taken away. He's talking about dying and suffering at the hands of the oppressors, at the hands of the Pharisees. And now he's talking about drinking a cup. And that's clear reference to the wrath of God. Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. That's the judgment of God. And then in Mark chapter 10 verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So the veil keeps being pulled back. We see the wrath of God now involved. Now we see substitutionary atonement involved. In Mark chapter 14 verse 8. Perhaps one of the disciples that did get it was a, was a lady. And not the men. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for my, my burial. Remember, as Mary comes in and breaks that flask, pours out that perfume upon Jesus, she was anointing him for his burial. In Mark chapter 14, verse 24, he says to the disciples on that last night, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This progression of Jesus showing what it is that's going to happen to him. And what it is that he's accomplishing. That he's dying for his people. And that is why he was taken away. So that he might pour out his blood as a ransom for many. Those who know Christ have been bought and have been brought into something new. And have been made new by his blood. That passage we read earlier, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the new covenant. This is the new covenant by which we are made new, by which we are saved. The new covenant of his blood. Righteous blood spilled to pay the price for many. 
Our sinful blood deserved to be shed. But he shed it in our place, thereby satisfying the wrath of God. And so we rejoice, for he has set us free from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And because he was taken away, because he was snatched away, now we do fast. It says in verse 20, then they will fast in that day. What does this mean? Oh, he's saying you don't fast while the bridegroom's here, but I'm going to be snatched away, and then my disciples will fast. Well, first of all, there's some who believe that that's simply referring to the time between his death and burial and then his resurrection. That, that little time period there is the time in which the disciples would fast, and once he rose again, there would be no more fasting. But I don't think we can come to that conclusion because we see the early church fasting. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14, you look at extra biblical documents and you see the early church fasted. And we can also conclude from Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is condemning the bad way of fasting, that he's also promoting a right way of fasting. So I think that what Jesus is saying here, is that his disciples will fast in that day, meaning the day that he dies, and they will continue to practice fasting until his second coming. I believe that mostly because of the parable in Matthew 25. You remember the parable of the ten virgins? And in that parable, he calls himself again a bridegroom. And in that text, the bridegroom's return is not the resurrection. It's the second coming. So the glorious truth that rings forth from the text of Matthew 25, and which is implied here in this text today, is that the bridegroom will return. But until then, we do fast. So have we transitioned from wedding now back to funeral? Have we transitioned from glory now back to gloom? Have we transitioned from feasting now back to fasting? Well, I'll just say this. The fasting we do now is fasting in light of the new age we live in, in light of the new covenant, and it's radically different fasting. That's what Jesus is going on to say with these two illustrations he gives. He gives two illustrations to help drive home his point. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is saying, yes, my disciples will fast. They will fast, not may fast, they will. Fasting, I believe, Jesus here makes it an expected activity of all believers. My disciples will fast, but not according to your old forms, but according to their new freedom. Let me say that again. What's happening here is Jesus is saying, my disciples are going to fast, but not according to your old forms, which can't contain what, they're, what they have now. Not according to your old forms, but according to their new freedom. For the Pharisees and for John's disciples and for all those trying to keep the law, fasting was a form of religious ritual aimed at earning something from God. But for the disciples, after the bridegroom is snatched away, fasting is a fruit of a radical relationship longing for the return of Christ, the return of the bridegroom. Therefore, the old forms no longer function. They're no longer appropriate. Notice how these illustrations are tied to the wedding illustration. For in a wedding, you would wear your best garment, and you would bring the best wine. These aren't disconnected illustrations. Just as it was inappropriate to wear funeral attire to a wedding, it's inappropriate to sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
clothes shrink. Okay, we, we should know that. I think most of the time my clothes shrink because they're, they've, you know, they've been washed many times and they shrink. But sometimes my clothes shrink because I'm not shrinking. All right? But, but clothes do shrink. And so if you put a new piece of fabric on an old garment that's already shrunk, that new piece of fabric is going to start to shrink. And it will just cause a, a greater tear, a greater hole in the clothing. Jesus is saying that the old garment is no longer appropriate. He's not saying you need to try to fix up the old garment with something new. Do away with the old garment. Matter of fact, in Luke's version of this passage, in Luke's uh, a parallel account, he speaks of that new piece of cloth that you sew onto the old garment as being torn away from the new. And so you end up ruining the new garment as well. So what Jesus is saying here is that if you're going to the feast, that those going to the bridegroom's wedding feast, they don't wear the old clothes of the old covenant. They have a new set of garments, new wedding garments. Those headed to the great wedding feast of the Lamb are covered in new clothes. The old garments of self-righteous law-keeping were gone, and the new garments of Christ's righteousness had come. But not only are those who know the bride dressed in new clothes, they are filled with new delight. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine in old wineskins. Now, before I studied this passage, I always thought of a wineskin as kind of like a, kind of like a flask, right? Or a little old, um, old time of the cowboy movies. You know, they have the, what do you call it, the canteen kind of thing that's made out of leather. And that's what they're talking about here. As I study this, that's not at all what wineskins were. It's actually kind of gross. They would take a young lamb, kill it. Sorry, Olivia. Kill the young lamb. And they would sew all of its body parts. They would chop off the feet and then sew the legs together. And they would sew all of the body parts, the orifices together and leave, cut the head off and leave the neck open. Now they would gut the thing, but leave the neck open. And then they would let that skin, they would treat it in a certain way. And that big old dead animal would become the wineskin. So they pour the wine in there. So you, you can go look at wineskin pictures. They still do this in the Middle East. It looks like a dead animal hanging upside down that's been skinned and it's full of wine. And so that's what this is. It's a wineskin. Now the problem is what would happen is after time, that leather, that skin of the animal, I'm grossing out, but there's all these people going, mm. they would treat it in a certain way so your wine wouldn't taste like guts. I'll tell you that. Now, what would happen over time, though, is this leather would become dried out and brittle. And so when they put the new wine in, it was still in the process of fermentation, so it would produce gases and it would expand. But there'd be no elasticity with those old wineskins, and so they would just crack, and the wine would pour out on the ground. So it made no sense. It wasn't appropriate. It wasn't right to put that new wine in those old wineskins. There is a new wine filling God's people. And the old wineskins of Judaism no longer functioned. God was giving them a new infilling, requiring that a new person be made, a new heart and a new mind and a new creation. Something new was on the scene. What Jesus is saying that in the light of his arrival, these old outward external forms of righteousness and worship were now unnecessary and were incompatible with the new realities. These old forms were shadows, 
pointing toward the Messiah. And now he was here. And he was more than they could ever have imagined. For he was also the bridegroom. He was God himself, God in the flesh. So now the old covenant forms were incompatible with new covenant reality. The shadows had served their function. They had pointed to the substance. The substance was here. Jesus is now here and he has fulfilled the old and inaugurated the new. A new era, a new age, a new epoch, a new covenant for God's people. The day awaited and longed for had finally arrived. The promises of the Old Testament had been fulfilled in Christ. The old was now superseded and fulfilled in Christ. Superseded and fulfilled. See and savor, friends, that Jesus has now superseded and fulfilled the Old Testament priesthood. He has superseded and fulfilled the Old Testament Levitical offerings and sacrifices. He has superseded and fulfilled Old Testament circumcision and signs. He has superseded and fulfilled the Old Testament Sabbath. He has superseded and fulfilled Old Testament Passover. He has superseded and fulfilled Old Testament worship. He has superseded and fulfilled Old Testament fasting. The shadows were fading away in the light of the sun. The kingdom of God was at hand. It was coming and it was already here. The new covenant was being inaugurated. This new covenant was not the same as the old. It was radically new. Yet, and I want to say this clearly, the new covenant was not a repudiation of the old, but its fulfillment. I don't have time to do the whole other sermon series right there. The New Testament was not a repudiation of the old, but its fulfillment. It's been completed now in Christ So instead of putting on the old clothes of the old covenant, put on Christ, our righteousness. Instead of being filled with the old wine of the old covenant, be made new, a new vessel, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. New clothes and new wine fit for a wedding feast. But what about our fasting? What's it supposed to be like then? Our fasting is a new fasting. It's a new kind of worship, just like what Jesus said in John chapter 4. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit And in truth. So what is our fasting today? Well, it's not a fasting to gain God's favor or blessing. It's not a fasting of of mourning like the Old Testament fasting. It's not even a fasting to try to kill our sin. And let me me clarify that. Can the spiritual disciplines of fasting be helpful in, in focusing our minds on heavenly things and not earthly things? Yes. But fasting in and of itself has no ability to kill your sin. Colossians 2.20 If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. You see, the Old Testament fasting would have viewed fasting as that right there. I can fast and kill sin. You see, we kill sin in our lives and we fast more as a response to Christ's work in us than we do as an attempt as those here in Colossians, some of them were trying to do, to use the fasting itself to bring about some sort of spiritual change. So what is it? What is this fasting? Well, it's believers joyfully denying themselves the things of this world as they long for the bridegroom. It's not earning favor, but learning submission. 
Let me say that again. It's not earning favor with God, but learning submission to the Lord. It's not to make ourselves worthy, but it's because he is worthy. You see, that the Pharisees thought, if I fast, I become more worthy before God. Jesus, how come you're not like us? Jesus is saying, you know what? I'm the only one that can make you worthy, and I make you worthy, and therefore you fast as a result of me being, you being made worthy in me. The Pharisees had it all backwards. They didn't see. They didn't have eyes to see. And so we fast. Yes, we may fast to seek God's guidance. As in Acts chapter 13 when they were trying to set aside uh, missionaries. In Acts chapter 14 when they were setting aside elders. So let me give a little parenthetical comment right here. I am calling on this church to pray and fast over the next two weeks. And I'll be sending out an email here to clarify exactly what we'll be doing over the next two weeks. But here's the deal. We're entering into a process now of adding elders at Harbin's. And for the next two weeks, I ask you, I plead for you to fast and to seek the Lord as he guides us. Not to earn something from God. So, okay, yeah, we fasted, so now God's going to give us good elders. But because we want to submit to God and set aside the distractions of this world so we can focus on what he has for us. We do this not because we believe the fasting accomplishes anything for us, but so that we might better discern him who is already in us and with us. For though he was taken from us, friends, he is still with us. What a glorious truth. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with us until the very end of the age. So we fast, not like the Old Testament people, hoping God would come, but we fast as New Testament people, knowing God is already with us. So we fast, not like the Old Testament people, trying to earn guidance from the Father, but as New Testament people, seeking to discern guidance from Christ, who is already with us and who has placed His Spirit within us. We fast, not like the Old Testament people, trying to gain heavenly things, by denying themselves earthly things, but we as New Testament people keep our eyes on heavenly things already gained for us, and we do that by fasting instead of being distracted by earthly things. So how about mourning? Are are we to be mourning then when we fast? I prefer the word groaning. We're not mourning, we're groaning. 2 Corinthians 5.2 For in this tent we groan. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So we have this already not yet reality. We're, we're groaning for the, to be with Jesus physically with new bodies forever. And so that's part of the reason we fast. Now not mourning, but groaning. Because we want to submit to him more. We want to grow in the spirit. And so we ask God help us set aside these earthly things so we can focus on spiritual things. Romans 8.23 and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for that which we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We fast in light of these verses, not mourning, 
but groaning inwardly. We walk by faith and not by sight with the first fruits of the Spirit as a guarantee. So our fasting has direction and purpose and power. So we groan with great joy because something new has come for those who know him. We groan with great joy. Not only is he God with us, not only has he placed joy within us, not only did he die for us, he, friends, is returning to receive us. He is returning to receive us. And I close with this. Though we fast, we fast with joy and we fast with great hope. What glorious hope we have. Those who know him have a glorious hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What wonderful words. Encourage one another with these words, friends. We will be with him forever. And when he returns, he returns to get his bride. And then fasting will cease once for all, for we will enter into an eternal wedding feast. As we read earlier, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And friends, because of this marriage supper that we are going to be part of, there's new wine, there's new delights, and we've been clothed with new garments. And his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Yes, Jesus indeed came to make all things new. And here in this passage... He starts a revolution. Well, in this this life, he starts a revolution. But here in this passage, he's trying to help these people see that he's bringing about a new change, a new way of doing things that will radically change their lives. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Glory be to God the Father for sending us an undeserving people, his son, and for making us the son's bride and for sealing that relationship through the new covenant of his blood, and for giving us the down payment of the Holy Spirit who dwells within our hearts so that we might worship him in newness of life, in spirit and in truth, not beholden to the old forms, but going forth in new freedom. And he is coming back. Our bridegroom returns to take us to himself, to consummate the marriage, and to feast with us forever. So here we are now, filled with joy, even as we groan for the return of our bridegroom, and the redemption of our bodies. That's the radical change I hope that every single person in this room has come to embrace. I don't care how advanced our cell phones get or our technology or how much our pop culture changes or politics or anything else. Yes, change is rapid in this day and age. 
but there's only one change, a change of the heart, an old heart made new that really matters when it comes down to it all. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, as we close this time now, I pray, Lord, that you would strike any foolishness that I said in today's message, any wrong words, because I can't measure my words like you could. Jesus, I know that you say things perfectly. And when you say you're the bridegroom, it's not just some offhand comment. We're supposed to see the fulfillment of the Old Testament in those words. And so God, we come to you and we ask for your help. Because even though we, those of us, those of us in here who are believers, we've been made new. We've been given the very righteousness of Christ. And our sins have been forgiven once for all. We still groan with bodies and flesh that wants to go back to old sinful habits. And so we have to kill our flesh. We have to kill the deeds of the body. And so we groan and we groan and we groan and we wait eagerly for you to come back. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We ask that you come because we want to be with our bridegroom. We want to be with the one we love. And every moment that passes is a moment of groaning. But God, I praise you that it's a groaning that's filled with joy because we know what awaits us. And so we walk around in this world, yes, groaning, but we also walk around with great joy and happiness. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's an odd thing we Christians are because we are already not yet. We are your children already, and that's sure, that's secure. But we are not yet there. Our adoptions papers have not been fully finalized. So we wait, and we wait, and we wait together. We encourage one another as we wait for that day, as we see the day approaching. We wait together. We sing songs to one another about you. And we find our sufficiency not in one another, not in singing songs and not in any religious ritual and not in fasting. We find our sufficiency in you, Jesus, alone. You will carry us through. You will take us to that wedding feast. And we look forward to that day. We can't wait. So until then, let us find our hope in you, all of our hope in you alone. Pray this in your name. Amen.